The human animal isn't doing well in the modern world. We have become domesticated and have lost our wildness. The Human Animal Show explores a return to a state of wild health, our original, authentic human animal. And now your hosts, Frank Forensich and Dr. Rodney King. There we go. Hey, Ray. Hi, Rodney. Good to see you. At last we meet. <laughs> Finally, myself and Frank get to talk to you after me traveling halfway around the world, you, yeah. mo you moving, and uh, Frank being on the other side of the planet. <laughs> Hello, Frank. Hi. Hello. <laughs> Good. Oh. Yeah, no. So, I mean, I know like moving and stuff is super stressful. So I understand that. It's uh, yeah, not the easiest thing to do, but it sounds like hopefully things are starting to work there. Uh, eventually, but I have discovered, as Nietzsche said, we are possessed by opposition. So um, <laughs> it, it's it's not a one-way relationship. Yeah, uh, no, uh, for sure. So, so Ray, I mean, I'm I'm not sure if you had a chance to like listen to some of the other episodes that we did, but I can kind of just give you a quick background of what we're trying to do. So, myself and Frank are having discussions with people that we respect and I've listened to some of your interviews and I loved what you had to say, so I thought well, you know, Ray would be a really good person to talk to. Oh, and the basic premise is this. And I think we're not the only ones that feel this way, definitely in the modern world right now if you speak to most people, there is a sense of meaninglessness, um, an increase in mental health concerns. The bottom line is the way that we like to think of it, and we talk about the human animal, might, some people might find that as uh, some kind of, I don't know, like, you know, an insult, but I see it as a, as a positive thing, you know, that the human animal isn't doing well in the 21st century and hasn't been doing well for a while. And increasingly, it seems to be getting worse. Does that resonate with you at all? Um, would you agree? And I'm almost 100% certain you have something to say about that. <laughs> uh, yes, I most certainly do. And I would have to sort of nuance a little bit what you said. Sure. And I guess that's something we will discuss. Um, firstly, the epidemiological facts about whether things are getting worse and so on. And, and the second is there are many aspects in which life has been utterly transformed for the better for many people. And I hope we'll discuss that as well. But having said that, I still think there's a real question very close to the one you've raised. Yeah, and I think I guess the, the kind of my position is this, is that I agree with you. I think there, of course, and we all are benefactors of that. There are many things in the modern world that have undoubtedly improved how we live. If we compare it to, say, for example, even just a couple of hundred years ago. But with that said, though, one of the things that I keep noticing over and over is that even though we have all of these comforts, at least for many people in the West, of course, there are people around the world that don't, they don't seem to be happier for it. I think that's difficult. I mean, first of all, um, picking up on the facts that materially we're much better off. And you're absolutely right. The, the extraordinary transformation has taken place within 200 years. It's accelerated. And in the last 50, 40, 30 years, it has been amazing. I don't think you're familiar with Hans Rusling's factfulness, but it gives you the facts about life expectancy, health expectancy, infant death, um, female education, malnutrition or the absence of malnutrition. And all of those factors are utterly transformed. But having said that, one of the major contributors 
uh, to that transformation has been uh, the um, development of China. And of course, there are lots of problems in relation to the development of China, and um, in particular, uh, its authoritarianism. So there is the other side. But on the whole, if I were told that I was probably not going to die at 30 and that I was probably not going to be in pain most of my life, and hungry in most life, then my children, most of my children weren't going to die in infancy. I'd sort of settle for that, even at the price of a certain amount of authoritarianism. So that, that's to sort of put one aspect of it in, uh, in, in perspective. The other is, how much do we know about the longitudinal epidemiology of happiness or unhappiness? Clearly, we haven't had, a, as it were, studies that have biopsied the souls of people, you know, pretty steadily in a... Um, unselected population over 200 years or whatever. So we're not too sure how unhappy people are compared with their predecessors. And you could even argue that uh, in the 18th century, most people didn't have time to be psychologically unhappy because they spent most of their time being hungry or bullied or kicked around or crushed. So it's quite difficult to be sure about longitudinal trends in happiness or unhappiness or in the sense of the meaning of life. Clearly, if you're hungry, the meaning of life is to get dinner. Hmm. <clears throat> I guess my position is this and where I'm coming from, and, and I'll try to just keep it very uh, brief and succinct, is that one of the things that has definitely happened is that as we've become more urbanized, we've moved away from the natural environment, the environment, the connection to nature, the things that we will hear indigenous people talk about, that deep connection to nature, we've, we've removed ourselves from that which was part and parcel of our history on the planet for most of the time that we were here. And so I'm always wondering how much of the current malaise that we see in mental health conditions and so forth have a deep connection to that, even if potentially we don't inherently see that, is that we've been separated from our natural environment. We're struggling to cope in an environment that we are not potentially designed for. I mean, I know there can be a debate for that, but the mismatch hypothesis, right, is an example of that. Um, and I'm wondering how much of that ha has a connection to that. Because even when you mentioned the 1800s and you're correct, right, I mean, people were literally just kicked around. But we also have to take into account what happened before that. When, yeah. you know, especially if we talk about people in just in the United Kingdom as an example, right, they mm -hmm. had access to the land, they were able to move around the land freely, and then you had the enclosure movement. And that enclosure movement was brought about because of the elites, the elites basically closed off the ability for commoners, that's where the word comes from, mm -hmm. right, to be able to access those lands and be freely able to source the nourishment that they needed. And now suddenly they, they couldn't get into the lands. And so that was one of the reasons that were, that was done is so that you could push all those people into cities to get them to work into factories because you needed that workforce. And so there was a time even in the United Kingdom, which is my heritage, Historically, yeah. you know, I come from I come from South Africa, but all of my ancestors came from the United Kingdom, specifically yeah. Scotland. But there was a time when actually we were very close to the land and that was taken away from us. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, early industrialization was hell for most of those people who were involved in delivering the goods. And um, there are lots of great poets who bemoan, you know, enclosures, John Clare being the supreme poet among them. And um, the, the, having lost the right to Rome, but having said that, the right to roam would be subordinated to other rights that people didn't have, uh, even before, as it were, in the enclosures um, uh, were, were, were such a major, major theme. 
I mean, I'm not too sure that my right to roam in the early 15th century would have been produced much joy. And the relationship to nature? Well, it included being bloody cold in winter, if you excuse the French, and damned hot in the summer, if you excuse the French. Life was pretty tough. Mm -hmm. um, it's quite interesting. There's a wonderful book on the Thirty Years' War, um, which begins describing the horrors of the Thirty Year War and then says, well, let's just put those horrors against the background of the horrors of normal life at the time when the Thirty Years' War broke out. And they weren't fundamentally different. So I think there was a lot of suffering. Um, I, I, as a medic, you'll be, I'd be terribly aware of untreated diseases, never mind the ones that killed you. I mean, sometimes you think the history of the world may be the history of pain or the history of itch. Uh, so uh, in a sense, it is easy, I think, to romanticize the relationship between human beings and nature because it wasn't always a very pleasant relationship for the human beings. Uh, nature was not as always as gentle and kind. Uh, a long freezing winter and a, a long hot summer uh, may not have been, as it were, a source of happiness and profound meaning. So, I mean, I, I'm enjoying this because we kind of, I guess, in a way, we're agreeing on some things, but definitely coming from different perspectives, which is great, right? Because like one of the things that I'm sure Frank would agree is that it doesn't help us if the only people we talk to are the people that agree with us. Because, <laughs> you know, we need to have these conversations where we yeah. can be challenged as well. And I love that. And, you know, I don't know if Frank has anything to say at this point, because I'll make a point after that. Thank you. Yes, well, this conversation reminds me of Steven Pinker's latest works, and he's a big uh, proponent of scientific progress. And according to his latest ideas, things just keep getting better and better. And the the only downside of the modern world is climate change, and that that can be solved with nuclear power. And so his thesis there is very much pro-modern and yeah. I, th I think what happens with his ideas there it, it ignores a lot of the suffering in the modern world and I don't I really can't <laughs> subscribe to his point of view I think this uh this belief in perpetual progress blinds us to some of the uh the wisdom of our ancestors and that that is a mistake Maybe it's interesting, long before The Better Angels on Nature came out, nearly 20 years before that, perhaps 15 years, I uh, published a book called Enemies of Hope, which actually made the case for looking objectively at the progress of the welfare of the average person. And um, it was interesting, it didn't particularly um, create as many ripples as Stephen's book did. But I have to say, I agree largely with the tenor of Stephen's book. I think perhaps... He needs a little bit more um, subtlety and shading. Uh, but I, I, the trouble is, as a doctor, I'm terribly aware that a body that is not, that is ill, that is malnourished, uh, you know, that is um, in pain for all sorts of reasons, really cuts oneself off from the outside world. It's very difficult to feel related to nature or related to ancestral sources of wisdom when one's vomiting or when one has got a urinary infection that lasts most of one's life. So in, in that sense, never mind all the bullying and all the other things, 
So although Stephen may rather overstate his case, and certainly some progress, material progress, has taken place, sorry, has cost uh, an awful lot in terms of the loss of social progress, particularly in communist, well, in post-communist China, um, I think his general message is right. I suppose it's pro probably, I tend to imagine what it must be like to be in the kind of state that most people were for most of history. So, yeah, that's interesting, Ray, because I'm not sure if you're familiar of the works of, for example, um, Salen's work, the original affluent society is an example of that, and, and several others who have made case, at least from their research, that actually things weren't as bad as we've been told that they were. That mm. if you look back historically at the time of the hunter-gatherers, as an example, we were told right. that life was short and brutish and, and so forth, right? But their research shows that that wasn't necessarily the case. And I do want to like defend them in one respect, is that nowhere in there that I get the feeling that when I was reading that those works that they were over-romanticizing it. So what I mean by that is they weren't saying that it was always easy. They weren't yeah. saying that, oh, these, you know, the people back then had, you know, you know, no problems with their health and so forth. That's not what they were saying. But if you just even look at some simple things of that, what we go out to and we go and do as entertainment we pay for they did as part of their everyday experience right that was you know in, in essence their living and the amount of free time that they actually had at the end of the day far exceeded what we have today and so if on the on the face of it it actually you know outside of not having access to all the things that we are so used to technology and so forth on the face of it it does seem that actually life wasn't as bad as it's been made out to be I think that's a very good point. Uh, I, 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 many people would accept that the agricultural revolution and the, the civilization or the, the cityization of humanity came with it, brought with it initially a, um, a worsening of the conditions of most people. I would entirely agree with that. But obviously, the agricultural revolution took place, let's say, 10,000 years ago. But we're looking on a shorter time spe uh, spectrum. And if we look back over the last 2,000 years, I would say the life for an average person and you and I and Frank would all be average persons, most likely. The life of us three would have been much shorter, much more unpleasant, much more threatened by uncontrolled power of others uh, than it is now. So, OK, let's, let's let's say even if we kind of we don't have the, the same agreement on the philosophical aspects of these. Right. What is your take on if we talk about technology? I'm assuming that you're an advocate of technology. Um, I don't think often, in for the most part, technology in of itself is the problem, but it does seem that we seem to lack the wisdom on how to use technology appropriately. And if we look at the vast majority of problems that we are facing in this day and age, it comes down to not necessarily a lack of technology or even a lack of will, but it is, for me at least, a lack of wisdom because we seem to always default to these kind of base kind of instinct instincts that are not necessarily very good. You know, we greedy, we 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 all in, in it for ourselves. And these are the kinds of things that are creating all of our problems. I mean, what is your take on that? Well, technology is really like the source of all to all technology, which is the human hand. It can be an agent for good or it can be agent for bad. So a hand can caress or a hand can punch. And that's true of all the descendants of the hand which are, of course, technology. And it just seems to me that's absolutely right. We can use technology for good or evil. There's a sort of background technology that on the whole 
um, makes life more bearable for most people. But there is some foreground technology which can poison social discourse or even worse, um, make um, conflict between groups even more appalling. And of course, we do have the means at any time, as we have since 1945, of uh, destroying the whole human race. So clearly there is that dimension of technology. But your point is the right one. We can use it for good or evil, just as we did our hands uh, when they first became um, prehensile and intelligent organs. We could use them for all sorts of things, and not all of them were good, but not all of them were bad. But it's interesting you were talking about our distance from nature, and that it's, it's interesting to think in what sense we are or are not naturally part of nature. We're really rather unnatural animals. And you, you can look at that. For example, take the wheel. What an extraordinary development that is. Fancy being propelling oneself, not with one's legs, but with a circular object. What a very, very strange thing to do. So already when we have the wheel and all those wheeled vehicles that have resulted from it, we've become gone a long way from nature. So in, a way, in other words, our distance from nature isn't a recent thing. It's a very ancient part of what is extraordinary about man or human beings who are explicit animals, able to share their consciousness and to shape the world in which they live to a degree which is not seen uh, in even our nearest primate kin. Hmm. I guess, let, let me see if I can kind of situate my thoughts on this. Why do we feel this necessity to always want to have more and push more and drive more? Why do we even think that, you know, driving towards this technological, you know, pinnacle that we're moving towards, even though we may not know what it is, why, why is that even important? I mean, who's to say that our hunter-gatherer ancestors, at least where they were, now they maybe didn't have all the things we're talking about, the wheel and so forth, right? But yet maybe they felt far more meaning in their lives and felt more connected to where they were and the planet and their experience of joy and flourishing was far greater than ours. And than ours. I think we just, I think we oftentimes think that that couldn't be the case. I just, honestly, if we took all of these things away and we had to go back to that time of hunter gatherer, I feel, at least I would, I think I would be a lot more happier than I am now in the modern world because most of the things that I have to interact with that cause me stress and tend to, you know, push me towards that kind of negative mental state is being generated by the modern world and the way that things are set up. You know, the idea of competing with each other all the time, the idea of consumerism, materialistic kind of pressures, you know, the, the whole point of always having to want to outdo everybody else, all these things. I'm not to say that that wasn't the case back in, in the hunter-gatherer times, but it's definitely on steroids right now. So, you know, I just feel like, you know, why do we have to constantly feel like, think about like, Elon Musk is a good example of this, right? So we we haven't even had the wisdom to behave on this planet and look after it. Now we want to leave this planet and we want to go Absolutely. somewhere else and go yeah. destroy that planet. I mean, you know, at what cost at the end of the day? It feels to me that no matter what you tend to give people, no matter what you give them, technological or other, they never seem to be happy with what they have. I, I, that is to me is a, is, is a really central question. And I mean, having moved house and moved all my possessions, discovered that I'm possessed by my possessions, as Nietzsche said, one of the things that I moved is perhaps the seemingly most innocent and respectable, which is books. 
And in the garage, I have got 60 boxes of books, which I haven't got round to unpacking yet. Now, there is no way at my age in life I'm going to read all of those books. So I have accumulated more books than I can read and certainly more books than I can reread. So there is a kind of natural tendency amongst, well, I say natural, but an instinct amongst us to acquire, to accumulate and so on. And I think that is probably the greatest challenge to humanity because we're not going to sort, for example, sort out global warming, climate change and so on without a reduction in our consumption, either of fixed possessions or of pleasures or whatever. And that raises all sorts of interesting geopolitical economic questions. How can a successful nation, as it were, manage its decline in growth? We've recently had um, a a budget in the UK yesterday in which the emphasis was on growth, 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 as if the only way for economy to be healthy is to getting bigger and bigger. And of course, if it doesn't get bigger and bigger, there is some suffering. So we've got a real challenge of finding a way in which we collectively can actually reverse the push to growth, what you've described very dramatically in, in consumption of all sorts, and without, as it were, looking as if the economy is bust or falling apart or whatever. And I think that's something that needs to be thought through. Mm. Again, bit, com- yeah. Sorry, yes. yeah, no, coming back again to the hunter-gatherers, right? And that's an interesting kind of juxtapose. Well, think about what they had. They only had what they needed because they had to move and they couldn't hoard all these things. So you just basically had whatever you needed and that you could carry on, you know, carry on yourself, right? You couldn't have all these other things. And so again, is this kind of need to consume and the the drive towards materialism, not a modern phenomenon because it doesn't seem to have been something that our ancestors were concerned with. Depends how far back you go when you think of modern it seems to me that once we had civilization, then we had acquisitiveness. We had people who acquired things in order uh, as symbols, symbols of their own greatness and so on. I mean, clearly the upper classes in a city had to exhibit they were upper classes by having more possessions than the lower classes. So I think it goes a very long way back. Um, Whether the hunter-gatherers were happy or not, one thing we can be sure is the acquisitive instinct in human humanity goes an awful long way back. And the acquisition of things as symbols of one's status also goes a long way back. So it's not a sort of 19th, 20th century problem. It's not a problem that's arisen post the Industrial Revolution. Mm. I, I think it's a long-standing problem of how we can be together without, as it were, always, always trying to signal to each other uh, that we're better off and therefore better uh, than our fellow men and women. Yeah. Mm. Frank, before I switch gears. Well, I would just like to spend a little bit more time on this psycho-spiritual crisis that so many people are experiencing now. And I read a a recent bit in The Lancet where 75% of young people report being terrified about the future. And that kind of thing is just not acceptable. And even if we have physical pleasures, even if we have modern medicine, that kind of thing is we can't stand idly by and accept that. And what I see as part of the problem here is the acceleration of innovation in the modern world, because we have this this hockey stick graph that shows up 
all over the place now. And it's not just the hockey stick graph of population growth and technology and energy consumption and global. All of these things are moving toward acceleration. And we feel that in our bodies and we feel that in our spirits. And it's hard. It's hard to even imagine a future that works. So how do we how do we get to that point? Um, you've raised that and it suggests we need to separate two things. Uh, one is a totally justified fear of what the future may bring. I mean, I have grandchildren, so they will harvest whatever terrible future uh, that um, we elders leave behind us. Uh, so there's that justified fear about the future, which hopefully can, as it were, energize real change, genuinely on an international basis, although there are so many fixed political structures, it's quite difficult. Mm -hmm. The other is um, the feeling of lack of meaning in life, which I think is where we began. Um, and I guess that that is, it's very difficult to know um, what the epidemiology of that is, um, whether there are errors of ascertainment when we compare the present with the past and so on. Of course, one, one of the explanations is that uh, we live in a disenchanted world, a no longer religious world, world where there's no longer... Um, belief in uh, spirits, gods in an afterlife and so on uh, a life of um, atheism or a life of secular humanism um, I, I think there's a way of addressing that but um, I, I think Frank what you said is the fear of the future is not only a clear and present anxiety amongst lots of younger people it is a totally justified anxiety <laughs> Yeah. So, so Ray, when you say it's a justified anxiety, what is your perspective? Let's go a little bit deeper in that. What is your perspective on why that actually is? Like, where do you see that coming from? I can't think it comes from the facts. You know, we 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 look as if we're not going to meet that you know two degree target, and the and the, the consequences of not meeting the two degree target are catastrophe in certain parts of the world people understandably seeking survival in other parts of the world, potential conflict as a result, and so on. Um, so I do feel that um, there is, that uh, that is well-founded anxiety. I mean, clearly some of us have been aware of climate change as a clear and present danger for a while. And I think even the so-called climate skeptics now tend to confine themselves to Twitter and other secret places rather than uh, get uh, prime time broadcasting on uh, you know, television and radio. But still, they slowed things down in terms of our addressing these issues. And I'm not impressed by my own country, uh, what we're doing about um, greening our economy. So I think just to pick up on what both you and Frank say, yes, there is a real clear and present danger. That fear is totally justified. And one would only hope that fear would... Um, be hitched to action and that if 75 percent of young people do have that fear perhaps that in itself increases our chance that we may indeed uh, head off catastrophe well another point of focus I, i'd like to bring up is this idea of story and narrative because yeah. in a in a traditional culture People would, in general, I think, have a unifying narrative. There, there just weren't that many stories in a hunter-gatherer world. 
And it offered an explanation, even if it was a superstitious explanation, at least people had a grounding in story, uh, something that explained the world to them. And now our, our uh, narrative sphere, you might say, has been so fragmented and story has become entertainment. We don't have, young people don't have a single narrative that they can attach to. And maybe that's a place where we can do some good work. I think that's true. And, and the story and the narrative needn't be dramatic. I mean, the stories and narratives I've committed most of my writing to are unpacking the bottom limp, bottomless mystery of ordinary Wednesdays. And from that, you can really unpack extraordinary things. I, I wrote a piece called The Geology of a Blush, and it talks about a. Um, I was at a, on a ward round, and the nurse was saying where the patient was going to, and he said the patient's going to H ward. Now, he had an Irish accent, and he said H with an H at the beginning, and he blushed. And for unpacking that blush right to the origin of language gives one a sense of this huge, multi-layered depth upon which ordinary, trivial things stand. So I, I would like to think that we can encourage people to be more and more astonished by that which is utterly ordinary, because it's not at all ordinary. I mean, there may be also dramatic stories to be told, cautionary tales, etc., which are necessary. Um, but as a philosopher, I, uh, that is to say, a descriptive philosopher rather than a revisionary philosopher, I think there's a, there are fantastic stories to be unpacked from our moment-to-moment -moment existence. Mm -hmm. Ray, not only you know are you a philosopher, but you're also a poet. So here's my question for you. What do you think the role of poetry can play in helping people achieve personal growth and flourishing? One would like to think it did have a role that, again, it makes people stop, look, be astonished, you know, um, obviously learn to love their language, the language they use every day in a utilitarian way all the more. Um, whether or not it does that, I'm, uh, whether it does that or not, I'm not too sure. Paul Valerie once said, a poem hesitates between sound and sense. And that's a lovely way of, as it were, putting language itself in italics in the service of some kind of new sense unpacked from the world. Whether poems actually have much of a presence in our everyday discourse, I'm not sure. For every person who reads a poem, I suspect a thousand, a thousand will write them. It's interesting when I bump into someone and they say they write poetry, I think, mm -hmm. they say they read poetry. I may say, oh, gosh, who do you read? <laughs> so in the same in the same light, Ray, as a philosopher, then, is there any importance to philosophy? I mean, if you think about how most philosophers kind of present their work these days, I don't know. I'm sure Frank feels the same. I, I'm listening to it. I'm like, what are these people talking about? Are they even on the same planet? And what does it even matter what they're saying? What meaning does it have? How would I apply that to my everyday life? But I'm sure you don't feel that way, right? I mean, I know from, from what I've watched from your work that you do still feel that philosophy has an important role in the modern world. I do. Um, well, I feel it has a important, uh, potentially an important role in our life. Much philosophy, this course, has become professionalized. So an average philosophy paper is, as it were, imitates a science paper. So it's got lots of references and so on and so forth. It's no longer a great and spectacular act of imagination as, for example, Plato's dialogues were or Schopenhauer's world as will and idea. 
um, it's very much uh, an academic exercise, and one fears that the law of diminishing footnotes sometimes applies to quite a lot of, uh, of philosophy. If you look at the number of philosophy journals, the number of philosophy papers, I don't know how many papers there are published per year, perhaps 100,000. And uh, how on earth could anybody read them? And the signal is often lost in the noise. Having said that, there are some very interesting philosophers. By a happy coincidence, just before um, we started this conversation, I've just been reading James Tertullian's uh, Inner Space Philosophy. Um, it's still in manuscript at the moment. But there's an example of philosophy that absolutely electrifyingly digs deep into the sense of mystery that we have about our own lives. The astonishment we quite reasonably would feel as to the fact that we are and what kind of complex creatures we are. So there is there is philosophy like that being written, but it doesn't seem to be part of the big conversation. In the 19th century in the UK, for example, Coleridge and J.S. Mill and Bentham and so on were all part of the discourse, at least of those who could read, the small minority who could read. Um, now, that doesn't happen anymore. People are very rarely talking philosophy or about philosophers. I mean, in the States, there are one or two philosophers like John Rawls, who were important political philosophers. But the kind of philosophy that I find interesting, metaphysics, doesn't seem to be part of the um, collective conversation or it doesn't figure largely in the collective conversation. Whether it works upstream and has some um, remote influence on what we say and think, I'm not too sure. Um, I would be very surprised um, because it's too, as it were, it gets its feet get stuck in a marsh of footnotes quite often. <laughs> when I just like when I spoke when I speak to a philosopher, Ray, one of the things that I always want to ask is, what is your personal philosophy? Like, if you mm. had to summarize what your personal philosophy is, because I'm interested in what that would be after all the years that you've studied philosophy, thought about it, debated it. How does that inform your life and how would you explain that to somebody else? It's massively unoriginal. It goes all the way back to Aristotle, which is be astonished. Ooh. I mean, he says philosophy begins in wonder. My own feeling is it not only begins in wonder, but it continues in wonder and it ends in wonder. So, uh, I mean, that is my philosophy. And then it would be enacted by looking at particular things or sometimes addressing particular questions, even sort of traditional questions like what is reality and so on so um in a way it's the obli existential obligation to oneself to live in a state of wonder um it informs my own philosophy of course one can't live in a state of wonder all the time not when you're running for a bus or you know keeping a crying baby happy all night or you know um, suffering from gutterot, there's lots of ways in which wonder uh, becomes extremely marginal. But when are those when life isn't, as it were, bearing down on one, to use the space that's been made available to be astonished at the ordinary things. Yeah, I mean, whether they're clothes, whether they're um, the fact. I mean, I, I wrote a whole long trilogy on the human hand, which is the most extraordinary um, entity, one of the most extraordinary entities in the universe. But to be astonished by one's own hands, you know, is 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 not a bad way of um, being embodied and thinking about oneself. Impersonal astonishment at oneself. Yeah. Well, I would add one thing there. Uh, 
some new research coming out about the power of awe. Mm. And people have done this work in laboratories where you can induce a state of awe and then measure their, their psychological responses. And it's all positive and uh, books now being written about the power of awe. And that sounds exciting to me, but then you look at human history and our hunting and gathering origins, people would have lived in nearly a constant state of awe because you would have been seeing sunrise and sunset, the stars, uh, wildfires, thunderstorms, the whole thing. And now we don't get that. And what we do as a substitute is that we fall in love with our technological devices and we're finding <laughs> our awe in all the wrong places. And actually, we, we should have more awe about our technological devices. Think of this. I have near to my hand, and this is true, honestly, a little device in which I can talk from here in England to someone in Australia without raising my voice. And do you know how I do it? What I do is I send a signal to a satellite that's circling the Earth, and it picks up my, what I say, and sends it to the right address, the right person in australia now honestly i'm not making that up it's called yeah. an iphone so in a way quite a lot of our awe is appropriately directed to our technology although we're much more likely when we're in a hurry to be annoyed by the fact the battery's gone flat than to be astonished at the technology and um, we, we can make all sorts of things we can take so much for granted i think philosophy is about untaking the taken for granted but that's uh, nice. that's my particular obsession yeah <laughs> building off that ray all these decisions and all these things that we do as humans is there such a thing as free will well it's, it's, I'm, I'm very glad you give me the opportunity to um, flog the merchandise i published a book last year on on free will uh, called freedom and impossible reality and you probably know the arguments against free will that uh, actions are material events and then material events are subject to the so-called laws of nature and are causally stitched in uh, to the world. And what's more, some scientists or pseudoscientists believe by looking at the brain, you can see when people make decisions, the brain's made the decision already. Um, I actually think um, the all that kind of particular uh, empirical evidence is deeply flawed. But And I feel as if we do indeed have free will. And, and we can, first of all, we've got to look how different actions are from other events in the world, even other events affecting our body. So my falling downstairs because I've lost consciousness is purely a material event. I fall down under the gravitation, falls to the gravitational field. My going downstairs in order to drive the car, to go to the station, to go to London, to go to a meeting, to make the case for better stroke services for patients in the UK, which I did many times, now, that's a different kind of action altogether. And it is infused by not causation, but be causation. And my action is the realization of a possibility in a future that I envisaged, a very complex possibility. So I do believe that actions are totally different uh, from um, mere events. They may be built up out of things that are no longer willed. So, for example, when I'm running for a train, I don't have to put one leg in front of the other. I don't have to do walking like I would as a toddler. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, that skill, skills I've acquired, those automatic skills are subservient to non-automatic behavior. And, and you may ask, well, how is this possible? And 
in, in my book, Freedom and Impossible Reality, I discuss our relationship to the natural world, which is revealed spectacularly in science, where we can go into a laboratory and demonstrate or utilize the very habits of the natural world to subserve our agency. And if you look in great detail, you can see that the so-called laws of nature are really the laws of science we've extracted from the habits of nature. And it's those laws that we use, which produces devices like the one I've just been talking about, where I can um, talk to a friend in Australia without even raising my voice. Um, so I do believe in free will, and I think there's plenty of evidence for the fundamental difference between actions arising out of agency and mere events that happen around us and in us. And in a more concise kind of approach to that, and the, th the reason why I think that's so important is that you know, we've been talking about people feeling, you know, a loss of meaning and so yeah. forth. And you have very well-known individuals, I won't mention them by name, who are pushing this narrative that there is no such thing as free will. Yeah. This kind of fatalistic mindset, which I don't think is very helpful to humans flourishing, because basically you're telling them that there's no point to any of this. If you're already feeling that there's no point to this, that's not really a good message to hear. And I think your message and, and some others who do advocate the existence of free will gives us agency and allows us to feel that actually as bad as things are, we still have the choice to change things and make things different. You're absolutely right. And I mean, it seems to me that those people who deny free will are not really sincere. They'll seriously resent what somebody does because they believe they did it deliberately, whereas they won't resent something that happens you know, spontaneously as an accident. So I, th I think it's true. I mean, there is some evidence that if people don't believe in free will, they behave worse because they feel they have permission, as it were, to blame the laws of nature for their bad behavior. Um, but on the whole, they still expect to be treated well themselves. Um, so uh, there's no, I don't think there's any really sincere determinist, although it's a position you, one, one, one can, can adopt. Incidentally, determinism doesn't necessarily make one a more kind um, judge, as you were. If you say, well, the person couldn't help doing it, what they did, therefore they got no control on what they do, therefore they need to be put in the slammer forever. That's the kind of, it can go either way. So they were excusing, um, say, crime on the basis of nobody has free will would result in everybody who committed a crime being put in the slammer forever to make sure that they didn't um, repeat repeat their crimes. Yeah. And uh, I think, I think uh, Ray, like connected to that and maybe kind of our last point to discuss is that, you know, you've written extensively about the nature of human consciousness and its relation to the brain. Um, you know, you argue while neuroscience has made tremendous progress in understanding the brain, it's not fully explained the phenomena of consciousness. I mean, what's your perspective on that? Because I think that's quite important. And I do think it ties to free will. Very much. Absolutely so. And I mean, basically, I was a neuroscientist as well as a medic for 30 years. So I'm not too impressed by the claims made by neuroscientists. There's a lovely conversation between Tolstoy and Chekhov once. And Tolstoy was lauding the peasant virtues and Chekhov said oh for god's sake Leo I was brought up amongst peasants I know what they're like and then no they don't have these great virtues you ascribe to them and I feel the same thing having contributed my small grains of sand to the pyramid of neuroscience knowledge I know how little we know but there's one thing we really don't know which is how it is 
that neural activity uh, is uh, able to be so closely associated um, with consciousness. There's no doubt about it. The brain is a necessary condition for consciousness. If you chop my head off, my IQ falls precipitously. End of story. Um, but if you look at what happens in the brain, there's nothing in it that is like the experience of red or whatever. And what's interesting as well is neural activity in those areas that are supposed to account for consciousness, such as bits of the cerebral cortex, looks very similar to neural activity in the spinal cord, the cerebellum, and other areas that are not associated with consciousness. So we have, as it were, agree that the brain is a necessary condition of consciousness, but it isn't in any way a sufficient explanation or perhaps even a sufficient condition of consciousness. The fundamental feature of any mental item, mental entity, is intentionality. It's being about something other than itself. And no material event can be about something other than itself in the way that uh, my perceptions are about, say, your face as I'm looking at you now. Taking that just one step further, I just would like to you know, hear your, your view on this, is that we also know now that neurons are not just only in our brain, that we have neurons in our heart, in our lower gut. What do you think the role is in that respect. So it does kind of give the impression that if we want to just kind of say consciousness is distributed, it's not just something that is just an epiphenomena of the brain itself. In a sense, that almost reinforces the previous point because no one's going to suggest that my colon is conscious or has you know cognitive functions. And of course, uh, there is a lot of neural activity between the various chambers of the heart. No question about it. But I don't think any of that activity would amount to consciousness were it not for at least the brain. The brain is a necessary condition. Uh, so you could remove my heart. Well, probably not. If I survived it, imagine I could. Uh, and I would still able to be, be conscious. Certainly you could remove my gut and I would be conscious. So it's clearly that these um, these the gastric neural system and the gastric uh, and the cardiac neural system feed into what uh, as it were, the brain has to deal with, uh, but they wouldn't be standalone minds, as it were. No. Yeah. Frank, anything you want to? Oh well, just even the, I would add the muscular system to all of that because the muscles are are continuously pumping out of what are called myokines, these informational substances that circulate through the body, and that's part of it too. I mean, you use your body in a different way, and it's going to affect your brain activity and your consciousness so it's um it's all embodied it is embodied and 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 obviously a major development in philosophy in the last decade or two has been the rediscovery of the body good lord (laughs) right well you know well done and so they talk about you know the embodied mind which is absolutely right a little bit nervous when you start talking about information particularly when you refer to um the kind of stuff that's released in muscles uh, when you exercise as information. The word information is used an awful lot. I'm terribly purist about this. Information is that which is um, sent by one conscious subject to another conscious subject. But Hmm. as you know, I'm sure people have extended the word information until it's even been suggested that the whole of the universe is an information processor. Uh, John Wheeler, the great physicist, said it equals bit. The universe was just a whole pile of bits. And there's been lots of people who talk about um, 
the totality of things being information. But that collapses the difference between what is and the knowledge that it is. And the transmission of that knowledge of what is, is what information is about, uh, rather than thus merely what happens. So, Ray, as we come to the end of this, because we want to be respectful of your time, what would you want to leave us with? Give us some, because we've talked quite a lot and some of it's been really positive, a lot of it doom and gloom, but let's definitely finish on a positive note. What would you want, you know, at where you are now in your your young age, what advice would you want to give everybody about, you know, doing the best that they can while they're here and flourishing? I think we have two duties in life. Once, one is to so exercise our freedom as to extend that of others, whether it's freedom from fear, want, and all those things. That That's a sort of our utilitarian duty, and that's absolutely. And the other is a duty to oneself, which is to spend sufficient time reflecting on one's life to be utterly, deliciously staggered and astonished by it. <laughs> I love that one. That's, that's great. Well, thanks, Ray. We really appreciate your time, and uh, we'll keep in contact. Very well. Well, I've really enjoyed talking to you, chaps, and thank you very much indeed for having me. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, Ray. Cheers. Bye. 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 So. Hey. Yeah, that man. Well. Yeah, yeah, it went great. I mean, um, yeah, different perspective to us for sure, mm -hmm. which is nothing wrong with that. I think that's that's perfectly fine. It's like I said, I do think it's important to have people on the show that have a different perspective to us, and I think. We definitely, there's a middle ground there, right? I mean, there were things that he was saying, we agree with some things that we come from a different perspective. And I think that's important because too much of today is in silos. You know, everybody's in a silo. Right. They're only listening to the, the debates or the, the positions of people they already agree with, right? And are unwilling to listen to the other side. And I think speaking to Ray was a good opportunity for us to speak to somebody that doesn't necessarily see it the way that we do. And I think that's really important because that makes us reflect on our position and our argument and enables us to make our position stronger. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he keeps me honest because I, I tend to romanticize the paleo. Sure. Like we so do. do <laughs> and and that's, that's great. And I tend to forget about things like modern medicine and, you know, sewage treatment plants and things like that. So, yeah, it, it's a good voice to have in the mix. Absolutely. Hi, Dr. King here, and thank you for taking the time out of your busy life to listen to myself and Frank as we explore with our guests ways to return the human animal to wild health. For more information on Frank, you can go to his website at exuberantanimal.com or visit humananimal.info to find out more about my coaching programs, read the blog, get your hands on some human animal gear or explore our upcoming events. Until the next time, stay wild and free.